Hi guys, welcome back to episode two of Launch Break, a Market Gravity podcast. Uh, I'm Ben, uh, we haven't got Olivia with us this month, but we've got a fascinating podcast to bring to you, a very special recording of a recent breakfast event that we held at RHQ, The Arches, at um, London Waterloo. Um, we welcome Claire Cockerton and Paul Graham uh, from Plexel and Mastercard, respectively, along with our very own Nick Sherrard of Market Gravity, um, and expertly hosted by Toby Wood, also of Market Gravity. And the discussion centres around next generation innovation. So we've seen large corporates really building their innovation capabilities over the previous five years or so. What's next for them? How do they go from capability to excellence over the coming years? What best practice and precedents we're seeing in the market from which we can learn? Um, we hope you enjoy the discussion, guys. Um, it lasts about 40 minutes, and I'll get back to you at the end with some further details. I'm Fiona, I'm from Market Gravity and I head up marketing here and I'm really happy to see you all at the Market Gravity Arches today and like to welcome you to our second Innovate Big Breakfast event. The idea behind the event is to share some ideas with you, to share some interesting content and hopefully help you create new and compelling propositions but also give you an excuse to get out of the office for a couple of hours, make some new connections and have some new interesting conversations. Um, so today is all about next generation innovation. And um, the idea behind that is that, um, again, just to help you create award-winning propositions. Um, it's going to be informal, hopefully enjoyable, and you'll learn something new and take something new back to the office today. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Uh, so I'm your host for the day, uh, Toby Wood. As we talk about next generation innovation, how to develop challenging propositions and competitive edge. Um, so I'm a principal here at Market Gravity. Part of my role is to work with our clients as we design and run innovation functions. Um, and I've got to I've confess a real personal interest in today in that um, so I've been set the challenge of defining our point of view on next generation innovation and what that means. So I'm really excited to share a point of view uh, and get your feedback on it. Um, and then even more excited to hear from our panel uh, of leading practitioners uh, to get their perspective as well. Um, the conversation that we want to have, um, and this, I know that this is going to go wrong, but this is the, this is the plan <laughs> at the beginning uh, for our conversation, uh, is challenging beliefs. So there are lots of different approaches, and we'll hear about a few different approaches uh, from our panellists. But what is thinking, therefore, what are the beliefs that underpin um, those challenges? So why, why are we setting up the way we are? Um, the best of now, so what's working currently? Um, myth busting, so lots of big ideas around innovation, some of which we're likely to be leaving behind. So what, what have our panellists found that have worked and potentially not worked so well? And then next generation, so where do we see things going over the next couple of years? So without further ado, I'll invite our panellists onto the stage, into the, uh, these chairs at the front. So we have Paul Graham from MasterCard. So Paul, thank you. Uh, the front here. Yeah, it's a round of applause. Well done. Uh, Claire, Claire Coxon from Flexel. And, uh, yep, please. and then Nick Sherrard from Market Gravity. 
Let's do some introductions. Um, so, <coughs> Paul, would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, sure, uh, uh, Paul Graham. I, uh, I work within uh, labs from a product development and innovation point of view. Um, my remit is, I guess, Europe. Uh, we have, a, I guess, a responsibility for uh, making sure that we keep our customers relevant in the digital age. Um, if you look at the size of our organization, we're in 210 countries, we've got 2 billion card holders, 37 million acceptance points. Um, that's a lot of moving parts. You know, we've got 150 uh, currencies uh, going on along that. And yet we've got to keep being seen as being innovative. Um, a 50-year-old company based on credit cards primarily, but we got to look at I guess new flows, you know, we've got to understand and have thought leadership on uh, digital currencies, cryptocurrencies. We're getting asked these questions all the time. Not sure we know all the answers, um, but we know how to find, I guess, subject matter experts in, in, in these industries and bring them all together. And I guess my role within uh, MasterCard is making sure we find the best of breed startups out there that are leading edge. Um, we, we make sure that we're mining uh, innovation internally, uh, 15,000 um, employees across the world and we ran a thing called Take Initiative just a couple of months ago. We had over 2,000 employees participate in the 48-hour hackathon sprint. Um, most of those weren't engineers, which is really exciting. It's, it's people trying to come up with interesting ways of solving problems, whether it be internal to our company, whether it be um, outside in the, in the real world. Um, I guess our job is, to, is, is making sure that we focus on the future uh, as much as we can. Um, we, we create and disrupt, we drive our culture, and, and we make sure that we are empowering our customers, our, our clients, um, with that. So that's, that's me. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Uh. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks, Toby and Fiona, for inviting me. It's really nice to be here and to meet some of you. Um, I co-founded Level 39, which is a fintech accelerator in Canary Wharf um, back in 2013. So I've been working in the fintech sector trying to support these disruptive uh, financial services uh, organizations. And then founded Innovate Finance, which is the new trade body for fintech in the UK. That was backed by City of London Number 10 and the Treasury. And really that was about uh, helping the UK embrace this new revolution in banking, helping us fall back in love with, um, with how we manage our money. So um, I, I set that up and then recently have just finished a project on the Olympic Park called Plexo. Um, it's the UK's largest innovation centre. We're based in the former Press and Broadcast Centre on the Olympic Park, so highly connected building. And we just um, just uh, finished filling um, a 68,000 square foot innovation centre, which I designed as a, a mini city environment. So it has a, a monument square, it has a, a park and an event space and a prototyping lab. Um, it has a, a secular confession booth, I call it, so that uh, uh, entrepreneurs can meet their mentors and confess the deepest, darkest uh, truths about um, growing a company. Um, and and it's, we, we opened last year with the mayor, um, that's, that's Plexel, that, which, is, which is just finished. I suppose um, a, a more recent success is a, a, around um, supporting female founders. We ran a program called Plexiglass to support um, young 
uh, women who are founding uh, groundbreaking tech businesses, um, but who struggle with um, many unique challenges in finding finance and growing their companies and being as well respected and rewarded for that. So I guess my personal passion, um, and I think it's so central to innovation and attracting the right kind of talent to innovate, uh, is ensuring that we are um, embracing uh, the full range of genders, generations, and cultures. Thank you. Next. I'll go next. So, uh, Nick Sherrard, I'm from Market Gravity, and like Toby, work on this issue of how we make innovation work in big companies. But today, I'm really talking about the the whole story of innovation at Clydesdale Yorkshire Banking Group, so CYBG. So, for those that don't know them, they are they own uh, Clydesdale Bank, Yorkshire Bank. They launched a new digital challenger two years ago under the brand name of B, and then just last month or so acquired Virgin Money. Um, and over the last two years in particular, we've had to take a whole kind of um, step change in the way innovation works within that company, starting out from the premise of uh, an ambition to create uh, the first genuine challenger bank within the UK would be their position. Um, and the kind of starting point for that was trying to use, take an existing business, a very traditional business in the case of Clydesdale Bank, um, that was big enough to matter in the sense of it has a big um, customer base, it's a significant organization, but was still small enough to change, at least in theory. And the, the whole uh, purpose behind the customer innovation function that was developed was to be the driving force behind that agenda of how do you take this established business and turn it into a genuine challenger. So it's, you know, it's two years in, it's a, it's a huge pace of, pace of change in terms of what we've found so far. So we're um, two years in, we've got 12 new products and services launched within that time as full launches, which within a banking context is, is quite a strong thing, so even more considering where that bank um, came from. But also just to echo some of the things from before, I guess, in terms of there's, there's that part of it, there's you know, NPS development, but the wider piece was trying to put innovation at the core of that business, and in particular for them, at the core of that investor story, in terms of how they start to talk about the future of the business. So in terms of there's the number of launches, there's also the way in which it's changed the perception of that business, which you see through the share price, you also see through the types of people that are joining the business in more normal roles, if you like, and they're in the rest of the business as well. So. Brilliant. Well, thank you for those introductions. I've, I've suddenly realized I've got to actually get on and facilitate, as opposed to just <laughs> listening and, uh, and learning from what you're saying. So, that's, so, so um, we've answered this to a certain extent. I want to explore why uh, you've set up in the, in the way that each, each of these organizations have. Um, and so starting with Studio B, Nick, you've talked a bit about, um, it's, yeah, would, you, would you mind talking a bit more about why you've set up in the way that you have? Um, and I'll, I've got some follow-on questions on that. So it's, it's an interesting thing, because we talk about innovation and transformation a lot. One of the things we found within the Clydesdale story was through the process of launching B, when that happens, we got a bit confused as to whether we were running an innovation function anymore or a transformation function. Uh, and actually what we found is the two are in direct conflict. Actually, because if, if, if what we're saying is we need to have a part of the business that is focused absolutely on driving new innovation, getting things out there in the world, working at pace, then that can't also be training people up, engaging the worst parts of the business, if you like, in this new way of working. Those two things are, are different. So after the launch of B, the first sort of step in the transformation of the way we did innovation was actually moving Studio B to be a separate, a separate piece in a different city. Now that was partly about it needed to be in London so that it can convince the financial world or engage the financial world on what was going on at their bank. This wasn't anymore just a regional player. That was a big part of it. But it was also trying to give a platform to the people that could come from different parts of the business, but to give them a genuine platform where they could take on some of those missions. Um, 
genuinely find some solutions they believed in and then pitch those as innovations rather than as part of some great big program that had six months was running through. You know, it, it needed to have a, a different way of working, it needed to be hard-coded and to be given a platform to. And so um, it's one of the, one of the interesting themes is about remove, is whether innovation sits within the core business or removing it. And, I, and what I've heard is three approaches that are, are actually quite separate from the core business. Am I right in thinking that, or is, and, and do, we, do we believe that innovation functions often need to sit outside of day-to-day -day business? My view is currently it's more effective yeah. in the first instance when you're, you've put in place your first director of innovation or your yeah. second director of innovation. You decided yeah. you need an innovation yeah. function. Yeah. But ultimately it's like talking about the digital revolution or yeah. technology as a separate sector when really it should be embedded in everything that we do in business. So before, your, before innovation becomes part of how you reward people, how you hire people, yeah. um, how, you, how you incentivize people to think and to produce, how you conduct meetings, before that happens, which is a, a very long, tough, transformational, mm -hmm. cultural change, having um, innovation teams sit outside of the organization, giving them budget, giving them leeway, giving them the permission to do things in a very different way can be more effective, just to start to, to break ground and to see some traction. Well, so we've, we're talking about next generation. What's, I want to talk about what's working really well now. And so I was going to ask you, Paul, uh, to kick off. So how are you uh, developing challenging propositions and experimenting? Um, so. There's no such thing as a new idea, I don't think. And, you know, if, if you come up and wake up in the morning or you're washing your hair in the shower and you go, I've got this, this amazing idea, there's a fair chance someone else has thought of it. Um, somewhere in the world, right, it's very unusual to come up with something, you know, something new. And I think Apple proved that a lot where they don't come up with the new ideas, they just do them, execute on the ideas really, really well. And from our point of view in MasterCard, you know, we, we've got, you know, the products and services that we already have, you know, and, and, and already in market and, and doing really well. Um, and then you've got all this uh, really cutting edge, bleeding edge stuff going out in, in the world, you know, whether it be fintechs and startups. Uh, and what we try to do in labs is sort of bridge that gap between existing assets that we have, really cool new stuff that's, 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 that's out there. And then in the middle, we'll say, okay, well, you know, what can we use that's or be inspired by what's really, really interesting and cool, and what can we use from our existing assets, and can we blend the two together? And I guess in labs, that's, that's what we're at. We've got to make sure that we keep relevant for our customers. Yeah. There's no point in going out there and creating the next virtual reality product if it's not useful or relevant to, 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 to our bank customers, right? Yeah. Um, so what we did in, in labs, we've got a, a few different methods of, of doing that, and. and, and you know, it was interesting what Nick said there about you know um, fintechs and engaging with with um, corporates. So we've got three three tranches in our in our labs. We've got our our traditional R and D, if you like, um, uh, which which we've set up in in portfolios. So we've got things that we've got our uh, uh, payments portfolios. We've got uh, portfolio. We've got new flows. We've got AI and and virtual reality. Uh, we've got uh, financial inclusion, and we've got data. So there's five portfolios and what we do to, to if a new concept can get gets into those portfolios we have to I guess put them through uh, a, a few lenses you know so we, we go okay can is, is is it is there desirability for 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 this concept you know so is it going to solve a problem right a real problem 
uh, is it feasible for us to actually take on the challenge of trying to solve this problem? Um, you know, do we have the technology or the, or, or the smarts or the, you know, the, the, the acumen internally to, to actually tackle this? And finally, most importantly, is it, commercial, is it commercially viable? Can we make money at it at some point in time? And then once we've got, once we go through those lenses, there's certain gates. So you go from, a, from, from I guess, research to, uh, research to um, uh, prototype, uh, um, to, to pilot, to, uh, to scale, you know, so you, and, and if they go through those gates, you know, eventually it'll get, come out the other end and I end up becoming part of our, our core business, right? But that takes a while. Um, that's one, so, it's, so that's on our normal R&D, and we've got this other thing going on within that. You know, um, outside of the portfolios is what we call play with purpose. You know, so so uh, there's, there, there's some lads in our, our, our labs and some girls in our labs who, who love playing with Raspberry Pis and virtual reality and augmented reality and Facebook Messenger, and, and they, just, they just mess around with stuff and, hey, isn't it cool? Look what we can do, you know, type stuff. And, you know, you know, sometimes that stuff works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but yeah, blockchains of flavor of, of 2018 right now, and they're, they're, they're happily playing along with that. But, and that sits outside of the portfolios. The portfolios generally are, por are, are populated by innovation managers around the world. There's a few of us, and we're out there talking to startups, we're, we're talking to our customers uh, about what, understanding what their problems are, and, and that's where those ideas come from. We don't come up with all the ideas ourselves. Very few of them come up you know, from ourselves. But. And then finally, um, we've got StartPath, which is our accelerator program. And this is our formal way of engaging with uh, fintech startups. Um, so we've had about 1,600 applications from fintechs uh, around the world. We've had about 40 come through our program. Um, it's a sort of virtual six-month program where they, they do their, 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 their jobs and we, sort of, we, we, we deal remotely with them primarily. Um, the startups that we deal with are usually Series A. They're, they've usually got some traction. They've usually got some customers and revenue. And then what we've got is an ability to scale them. So we've got you know, connections with 20 or 30,000 banks. They want to get access to these banks. If we think it's relevant for our customers, we'll connect the two together. And it was interesting because we, when we started the StartPath program, and I worked in startups before I came into MasterCard, and I applied for this StartPath program, funny, and we didn't get, we got through to the final stages of it, and I was bitterly, bitterly disappointed we didn't make it into the, the, the six slots that are available for that intake, um, because I had to kill a startup after that. <laughs> I was like, uh, that's another story, a very sad one. <laughs> oh, we don't have any Kleenex today, so I'm <laughs> yeah, uh, not going to give you any more insight to that. But I have scars to prove that I was in, in, in yeah. FinTech startup. But what was interesting was whenever we were bringing, when I was applying to it, it was earlier than Series A, you know, maybe Series C funded, maybe a little bit of traction, but, you know, still trying to do proof of concept. But we were too young, and that, that, that alumni was too young to be interesting to banks because it was too volatile. You know, maybe they'll be here next year, maybe they won't be here next year. So, so as we understood more about how to engage with fintech community, we realized that we had to go for best of breed, and we had some huge assets that they didn't have, and they had some really great technology that, and, and ideas that we maybe didn't have, and that was where the sweet spot. And, and now we, we've got some really amazing startups in, in artificial intelligence, and machine learning, and blockchain, and um, cross-border payments, <coughs> and that's exciting for our customers as well. Um, and then finally, what we've got sort of outside of the 
those, those um, vehicles is what we call labs as a service, where our customers, our, our banks primarily, are saying, can you help us? So we take some of the R&D smarts that we have, and in a five-day sprint, we'll go in and take a, 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 you know, a problem that they have and, and, and try and turn it into, here's a solution to, for that problem. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch. By the end of five days, they've got a high-fidelity prototype, a video. They, they're equipped to actually sell to senior management inside of their bank. Uh, a solution to a problem that they're, they're experiencing themselves, and, and that's quite exciting. Yeah. Can I just ask a, yes, a follow-on question? So the, the startup community, particularly in fintech, are becoming more and more skeptical of working with larger um, financial services organizations because they feel protective of their own IP and, and you know, the process of dealing with large corporates can kill you because of your payment terms and blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, so it's really important for organizations like MasterCard to be like really clear about what your objective is. Was your objective to take an equity stake in these businesses? Was it to you know invest in certain pilots and that you were going to pay them for these pilots? Um, was was it a potential acquisition strategy? So they felt comfortable in in, in working with you and sharing their ideas. It's a really good question. Um, there's a lot of uh, incubators and accelerators out there, <coughs> excuse me, have become notorious at saying, okay, well, we'll take 10% or 8% or whatever it may be um, without doing much at all, right? You know, putting a roof over their head almost. MasterCard decided that they weren't going to do that. So we don't take any equity stake at all. Um, we do say that we'll take, um, uh, I guess, an opportunity in the future if we want to, to invest in your company, but we don't take it for free. We would put money in. But we would say we, we, want, we want to have first refusal at investing in you at a later stage, perhaps. Um, what we get out of it is an opportunity to showcase to our customers um, the fact that we're at that bleeding edge, that we can introduce them to the right type of companies that can maybe help them solve their problems. Uh, and the, the quid pro quo from the startup point of view, what they get out of it is access to these banks that perhaps they can't get access to. Uh, you know, it might be in a, in a region that they haven't entered before. It might be um, that they've kept on knocking on a door and they can't get the right, to the right people. But we can facilitate those, those meetings in a very structured and, um, I guess, um, commercial way where the bank will pay for the stuff from the startup. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you got to give us the, to, you know, it's, you know, what we get out of it, we're, we're adding value to our relationship with the customers, um, primarily. And then if we really like the stuff, we've got an opportunity to invest in the future. Um, with, um, we talked about uh, several different approaches all under the, within the MasterCard Labs um, space. Where, and this is a, when, when is the right, when is each of those approaches the right thing? So if we're, <coughs> if, if um, a less mature, a, 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 another large organization had, didn't, have an innovation function in place. What, when would you recommend an accelerator, the, the sort of the, the more traditional lab approach? When it, when's the right time, and how do they make that decision? When also, when's the right situation rather than the right time? Yeah, my view is that um, I don't really. You have to understand what their yeah. purpose uh, for the innovation. 
uh, function is. Are they looking to acquire? So some, some large organizations start a corporate venture fund they're looking to invest in and sort of um, put their finger in the competitive pie, so to speak. Um, some organizations are trying to acquire new talent, new teams, new technology. Um, some organizations are looking to um, partner in an effective way, so like integrate another proposition, say white label it, and integrate it into what they're providing the customer. So I think there are different tools for all kinds of those, those, the, those objectives. Um, you know, from the internal hackathons, external accelerators, building your own function. So um, I, I'm not sure there's a perfect formula. There's maybe a shift that's happening just now as well, which is partly driven by the kind of scale of what's possible now. Because for most, for most of recent years, when you talk about innovation in most industries, it's kind of been the digital customer experience layer has been where the kind of focus of innovation has been. Whereas actually the way that technology's moved is that it's actually going into the core of the way things operate. So I was thinking just now, you were talking about things that are happening now. One of the most exciting things I've seen recently is um, uh, the big issue and Castlight, so a fintech company in Scotland, uh, looking at uh, essentially how you can run the technology differently so you can give homeless people access to credit. Um, so it's actually kind of the innovations in the core products rather than in just the um, experience layer. But, but that also throws up in interesting kind of challenges for organizations. So on a sort of less social purpose example, I was talking to, to a drinks company, company the other day who was saying that they can now understand when someone walks into their visitor center, they can see their whole journey, where they've come from, where they go off back to. So on one level, you can kind of say, oh, we understand the lifetime value. But like, what is the innovation around that? Is that marketing anymore? doesn't really feel like what marketing traditionally did in terms of optimizing a sales funnel. It's a lifetime relationship piece. Is it a core new product development where it feels much more like it's going to use a whole range of different design skills than they were using before? So it, it, it kind of, the way things are moving challenges the traditional way of an innovation lab or even an accelerator in, to some level because it's cutting across the way the whole business works. Very good. So, um, and then we've talked about I'm trying to sort of section what is actually a much more sort of fluid conversation. I want to just, um, before we talk about what's coming next, I'll be keen, we're talk, we've, we've described the landscape, we've talked about um, some of these sort of core methodologies, core approaches and the methods that sit underneath it. What myths have uh, you uh, encountered, things that you've been told should work but actually haven't been able to work, make work in practice? I thought again, Paul, I'd start with you. Yeah, it's, I, I thought a lot about this one as tr trying to figure out you know, what would be the myth that MasterCard, you know, thought about and, and then it didn't work. And it's, 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 you know, I don't own MasterCard, by the way, um, so, <laughs> so it's really difficult to speak with authority from that point of view. So the closest I could get was thinking about, you know, what did we do early that didn't work, that we had to evolve or pivot or you know, um, Im improve on and. Uh, I guess in the early days of Labs, um, a little bit of background, Labs was, was, was formed by a guy called Gary Lyons, uh, who was the CEO of a company called Orbiscom. And Orbiscom uh, was acquired by MasterCard about 10 years ago. And they, they basically were pioneers in the virtual credit card world. Um, and when Gary came in, he's, he's very much a visionary, sort of you know, semi-genius type thing. Oh, he's going to see this video. Don't put that on if he sees this. But, um, <laughs> uh, so, but but what what he did he was he was given the remit of set up set up a, a labs you know like a, almost like a skunk works at, at the start and so he you know he was new to Mastercard and this 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 global uh, organization and he's a Dublin guy so he set up the first lab in Dublin 
And what they did was they, they basically came up with a couple of, or two or three probably, you know, ideas, or four or five ideas, but a small number of ideas, and then basically set a team to work on each idea. And, you know, arguably each idea failed, right? Um, or had varying degrees of limited success. And when you think about it, and from my point of view, then, and you'll see this as well, it's, it's sort of common sense. When you come from, an, from a startup background, when you're focused on one idea, and I told you earlier on that I wasn't going to tell you about the sob story, and I won't tell you the sob, but so I say the startup <laughs> died, right? <laughs> even though we'd traction, even though we'd revenue, you know, we were going really well, but anyway, it wasn't good enough, right? And we had to shut it down. And when you back only a few horses, you know, it, the chances are they're all going to flip and fail. Uh, and that's what was happening in MasterCard. And there was pressure being put on to this internal cost center, if you like, to, to you know, produce the goods. Um, and that's where the portfolio thing came from, sort of five portfolios. How do we put a structure around managing lots and lots of prototypes, lots of lots of concepts, um, so that something will rise, you know, the cream will rise. But if you, if you start off with the funnel too small, it's never going to, you know, produce an output at all, which, which is uh, valuable. So the big learning for us is, you know, over the last sort of, I guess five or six years is evolving from focusing on only a few projects to focusing on maybe we've got 60 or 70 projects going on at any one time in those portfolios. And a lot of them, you know, we, we, we call it feel, uh, feel smart, you know, feel fast, feel cheaply, and learn as much as you can from the experience, you know, so, and we're, we're going through that an awful lot. So, so the myth of, um, you know, my baby is the most beautiful baby in the world, right? <laughs> uh, we've all been there, right? Anyone who own, own children, uh, own children, <laughs> had children, you can like, own it in this same age, who knows? But, um, but yeah, so it's, so it's making sure that you, you, you've got enough going on uh, and that you're not afraid to, 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 to kill it. Uh, I'm not talking about babies now. So. <laughs> so, Two things Paul's not asked to talk about, babies and, uh, and sob stories now. An unfortunate plan so, of so analysis. So yeah. quick fire, just to make, uh, before we move on to the next generation piece, are there any other myths, um, Nick and Claire, that you've seen that you'd say just this, these haven't worked for us? Uh, yeah, I suppose um, being driven down in price. So when we are a, as an innovation um, advisory service, um, you're often, you know, part of a beauty parade. And we, we, we've gotten driven down in price, so we can run this accelerator for you for X, or we can deliver Y for this. Innovation is expensive, and it is, um, it, it does require time. It is a massively, it's a creative process. It's a process that involves lots of different stakeholders. So appointing one person or a very small team as the director of innovation and expecting to get results out of investing 100K, 200K is not as, I mean, and I've seen as little as 25, 50K kind of um, projects. That, I mean, I just, it's important to talk about real numbers. Um, you're, it's, it's, don't continue to do that over and over again. I think it's about um, a, a, real, a real investment in the process and, and involving all the right people. Sense. I think follow from you, Nick. Well, I, the, the only one I would, I would add is I think any discussion about agile or strategy or Scrum, it's better if you ban the terms. Like there could be good ideas in there, but as soon as people say they're doing something because it's agile or because it's on the strategy, they're normally talking nonsense. So that's that'd be my myth busting. Right, very good. Right, thank you. So. Um, <laughs> 
I can hear lots of people sort of think, are they looking a bit panicked there or, or nodding? Um, so we are now um, so moving forward. So we've talked about um, we've talked about uh, the the purpose and the why. We've talked about what's working, what's not working. So as we look to the future, um, it'd be great to explore how we you uh, perceive the next gener next generation of uh, innovation. Um, and Claire, I know that you've uh, you're, you've set up Plexel very recently. You're moving very quickly. Um, do you have any thoughts on on what's coming next? Well, I think we're seeing the emergence of lots of different tech clusters around the world in different parts of the city, and they usually have an an industry focus or a technology focus. And being as connected as you can to lots of different ecosystems is incredibly important. Um, you know, having the sort of as many touch points as possible with the innovator community is very valuable, even to your own internal innovation processes. Um, so, so I think you know, getting out there and learning, learning lots from the innovator community is important. Um, I think the barriers to entrepreneurship and to um, and to technology are dropping, and I think entrepreneur entrepreneurs are the heroes of our time. So we need to think about. Um, I suppose if you're a large organization, you need to think about how do we partner with them, how do we incorporate entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship into our culture, um, how do we enable entrepreneurial talent to flourish in our organization. Um, I think that's uh, critically important to, to fostering an innovation culture. Um, and, and of course, um, don't just experiment with VR because VR is so cool, or do, don't just gamify a process. Not every freaking yeah. customer wants to go through a game, you know? Yeah. It's not, not incentivized by that, just because that's like the, a buzzword of the, of the time, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, it's important to be focused with your, your, your technology um, investigations. And, and um, on that technology piece, what are the, what are the technologies um, what are the, so two questions here. One is, what, what are the technologies that you're seeing that you're getting really excited by? Mm -hmm. And then the other one I, that we talked about within Market Gravity is the sort of the impact of AI. So I'll start, I mean, Paul, maybe start with you on the technologies that you're getting excited about. We, we, we look at it in a, in a way like, we look at things or in, in places, you know, payments meet commerce, um, content means context and data mean, meets uh, business intelligence. So they're the, sort of the, the, the three overarching umbrellas. And within that, we believe you know, any device can be a payment device. Um, and we were talking about VR there. And we do, we do play with VR. We've got you know, Swarovski goggles in, 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 in our labs at the moment. Um, but what we're doing with VR is saying, OK, well, um, other organizations, let's say retailers, um, are, are, are playing around with VR, you know, virtual showrooms or uh, augmented reality where you can look at your mobile phone and see a chair sitting in front of you, but it's not really there. So what we want to be able to do is say, OK, if you're going to showroom this stuff, buy it, right? And what we want to do is put a, you know, a secure payment layer in, in, in the middle of those experiences. Uh, so that's so. So there's the there's where you know uh, payments meet context, or, or or content meets context. They're the they're the sort of areas where, where we, we play around in all the time. I mean, no one's mentioned blockchain today. You know, I'm, I'm sort of relieved in a way because everything that you go to, you hear about blockchain and cryptocurrency and that sort of thing, and and they probably do have a place to play in in, in the future. And, you know, we talk a lot about providence at the moment, you know, and you know, how do you track the diamond from the mine to the 
to, to, to the, 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 the finger of your Ever wife? Is how you well, okay, well, that's one way. Yeah, it's uh, blockchain. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so Providence is, 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 a, is a big deal there. But you know, but, but even there, there's challenges. You know, so we talk about uh, Providence. How do you know that the person who put the data onto the blockchain in the first place wasn't corrupt? You know, it's so, so when there's human intervention, it, it, there's always a challenge to, to the, the, the bona fide-ness of the, is that a word? of the data you're looking at. So anywhere where there's data can be created by not being touched by a human in the first place is a really great place to use blockchain. Yeah. But, uh, but I have a personal opinion, not a MasterCard opinion, a personal opinion that whenever human intervention is there, there's, there's an opportunity for getting it wrong, not accidentally or on purpose. You know, so, yeah. uh, and then from then on, what do you do with it? So, that, so and, and then, um, so there's, from a technology perspective, we, we're, we're like we're, we're sort of we're bored of blockchain. We know it's we're not quite sure where it's going to fit, but it's uh, it's uh, it's it's we're less excited than perhaps the hype around it. I mean, and Craig, if you were, and I know um, I know uh, you're moving on from Plexel, but if you were imagining, if you were setting up the next um, accelerator or the next, if you imagine your next step in that world, how how would you foresee that looking in in a couple of years' time? The, the if you imagine you were yeah, if you were setting up an accelerator yeah. in in and you imagined what it would look like in two years' time, how would it be different? Yeah, um, it, it's it really is all about um, curation of the community, in my view, and the value-added services. So, we at, at level thirty-nine, it was m more about proximity to your customers, all the banks around, that was very valuable to the startups. And it was also about um, sort of our, our mentorship scheme and being close to other fintech startups that were like you. Um, at Plexel, we developed a whole bank of professional services, in-house legal accounting, marketing, support services, which were low cost um, and supported the entrepreneurs. Um, in their business development. Uh, we also had uh, an entrepreneurship boot camp component um, to the, the community, and this was no cost value added services for the uh, members of Plexel. So I think focusing on um, the range of services for um, st startups is, is really important for new innovation centers and new accelerators. And the, the, the main areas of concern at the moment are around securing talent um, post-Brexit, uh, securing, um, developing the right kind of trading relationships, um, understanding how to access new markets. Um, the, these, are, these are challenges that are sort of they're blank, blank canvases at the moment for a lot of companies. And I think innovation centers of the future will need to start to provide services um, for entrepreneurs. So you know, access to your customers is a, is, a, is a wonderful thing. I think large corporates have a whole other host of resources that they could be offering to, um, to smaller companies to help them engage. I think you're dead right. I mean, and the difference between, uh, uh, I guess, an incubator and an accelerator, you know, there are two different things. And an incubator, you know, it's it's not a co-working. It's not. It's, it's much more than a co-working space. It's not just you know having beers in the fridge that anyone yeah. can take. Yeah. It's, you know, the, it's it's thought leadership. It's it's challenges, mentorism. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're the things. You know, for for early. You know, there's an awful lot of entrepreneurs and they're you know in their in their young or mid twenties, 
who haven't run a business before, who don't understand or, or have the, the skills for accountancy and understand the, the boring bits of business, right? Um, you know, primarily driven from an engineering point of view, and giving them the skills or access to the skills that helps them build a, a, a solid foundation of business at the same time as they're solving their whatever their their, their, their killer problem is, yeah. um, is, is I think is a really important thing. And we yeah. always focus, sorry, sorry just on that yeah. point, so sorry. Um, we always focus on those hard skills as well, the, the professional services and business development skills, but the, the true emotionally damaging pain points of being an entrepreneur are all the soft things. It's about developing leadership style, culture, um, you know, motivating people. Um, it's, it's managing your voice. It's developing your narrative. It's, there's like all, all these sort of softer components of running a company that really are, are um, difficult. That actually is a point. I'm echoing that actually, but in terms of for people trying to drive innovation in big companies, one of the interesting things has happened, in, which is a technological change, but it kind of enables a change in the way of working. So thinking of a recent example with a retailer where you know, people have got quite a small team, they've got a big idea that challenges some of the way that the wider business operates. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's been historically the situation lots of big company innovators have got to. And normally you then have this moment of having to go to the board and ask for a lot of money to get a group of people, it's pretty much like the whole of this room, us, us all to go and stop what we're doing and go and work on a different, on a different piece. What they're able to do now is they were able to demonstrate demand by essentially building everything apart from the core product. So they built a microsite, they built, built an online campaign and were able to go back in without having had that kind of permission moment and prove that there was demand by having signed up almost the first thousand customers. Now that was uh, impossible even three years ago, in most, especially in a regulated sector, whereas now there's both the awareness of how to do it, the tools are there. And that's quite a fundamental shift, I think, in terms of entrepreneurial people in big companies. They've actually now got, the technology has enabled them to have the tools to mm -hmm. prove some big radical new ideas, prove it in a very commercial sense, but without having to get that pretty big investment right, right at the start. So it should be quite an interesting, like the next generation of innovation will partly be sparked by people in different companies who step up to that opportunity in the next two years. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, and, I've, and I'm going to speak personally, I've really enjoyed and learnt from the conversation. And I think that the conversations ranged from, we've sort of blurred the lines between what's happening now and what's happening in the future. And I think what we're definitely, the position that I think we're all collectively in is that this view of the future is, is an emerging one and there's an ongoing conversation in this space. Um, but I've learned a huge amount um, from our speakers. Um, Fiona's going to tell us a bit more about the corporate entrepreneurships before we do our final thank yous and wrap up. Yeah. So um, the team and I know like, how your, tough your roles are in actually creating and launching um, change and impact um, and new propositions in your businesses. So every year we run an event called the Corporate Entrepreneur Awards, to which you're all invited to enter and join us on the night. It celebrates all your achievements and your team's achievements throughout the year, whether that's creating a new approach or actually having launched something to market. It's taking place this year on the 22nd of November in the Design Museum. Um, a few of you will have been already. Um, last year we had three, over 300 guests and 100 different brands join us on the night, so you've got a chance to celebrate your achievements which I'm sure is very rare to take that time out and actually stop back and look at what you've actually achieved um, and again make new connections meet new people so um, I'll follow up with some more information on that um, but that's 22nd November so put that in your diaries um, and one more thing just to say thanks to our awesome panel for this morning so if you can just give them a round of applause Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed that, guys. It's a really fascinating discussion, we think, and obviously the kind of bread and butter of what we love to talk about at Market Gravity. Um, if you want to find out any more about the Corporate Entrepreneur Awards, as discussed by Fiona there, the breakfast events themselves and what we've got coming up, uh, we'd love you to come and join us. Or anything else relating to Market Gravity, uh, including just wanting to have a chat, please drop us an email to launchbreak at marketgravity.com as ever, uh, and we'll get back to you. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next month.